Ladies, this is Corey Weathers. She is a licensed professional counselor. Is that right? Okay. And uh, she's going to tell more about herself and jump right into this topic. What a huge topic we have to cover. Huge in less than an hour. (laughs) And so um, let me tell you a little bit about myself. My husband is a chaplain in the Army at Fort Carson. And uh, before we came here to Fort Carson, um, we worked in a church in Georgia where I had my own practice there. And I specialized in women's issues, specialized in uh, marital issues, infidelity, um, children of divorce. Before even Georgia, I worked with women out of prison. Are we good? All right. I worked with, this is going to be, this is going to be hard because I, I'm a walker. But we'll make it happen. Um, I worked with women out of prison, and I worked with women with substance abuse issues, worked with um, every issue under the sun that you can think of with women coming right out of prison. Um, And thus began my passion for women and women's issues. And um, so being here at Fort Carson, once we decided to come into the military, we realized that there was just, we just had a great passion for just loving families, and especially within that culture. So, um, as I was explaining to Lex before um, this hour started, um, my role became to just stay at home during this assignment the past three years and not work. And the Lord opened up a lot of really amazing opportunities for me to use the skills that I have to walk with our families through the past three years. Um, I was what you call a care team coordinator for our unit, um, which basically means that um, during the deployment, when one of our widow, well, one of our spouses gets a, a death notification, I'm there when she gets that. And so, as I started to think about, wow, Lord, why me? Why, why am I giving this talk on depression? I started to think about. Um, my year of the deployment of walking 11 families through the death of, death of their soldier and sitting with women who have just gotten the worst news that you could possibly imagine and then walking through that year with them. Um, so I've, I've seen that. I have felt that alongside of these women. Um, personally, um, seeing my spouse go through a, a level and a depth of depression and what that felt like. And so I know what it's like to have a loved one or someone that you care about that struggles with depression and, and the weight of that and the sadness of that and the helplessness in that. Um, and then after the birth of my second son, um, having to go through postpartum, that I really at six weeks was so overcome with irrational thinking and depression that I had to turn and ask for help. Actually, I didn't ask for help. Um, I distinctly remember writing out my thoughts on a piece of paper because I I didn't think my husband would believe me. Um, It wasn't anything like I wanted to hurt my child, but any of those of you who have experienced it, it is just crazy thoughts that come into your mind. And so I wrote them out and I gave them to my husband and he read through them and he said, wow, we need to go see somebody. (laughs) And so when we walked in for that appointment, I remember sitting there waiting for the nurse to come in. She walks in. She's so, how are things going? And I just looked at her and just, <laughs> and I couldn't talk during the whole session. And my husband had to be there to say, she needs help. We need help. So I know what it's like to, to feel like you don't know what's going on in your mind and feel like you can't control it. And I know what it's like to be on medication. And I know what it's like to be on that medication and say, I want to be well and I want to go off that medication and what will happen if I do. And, and I know what it's like to finally get off that medication and know what it's like to live in the fullness of what it means to be a mother and wife. And um, so 
here I am talking to you about victory in depression. And as I've thought and prayed about this over the past six months, I've been overcome with so many questions of, wow, uh, is it possible to have victory of depression? What is depression? Why do we feel depression? Why is there depression? Is it me? Is it God? Is it Satan? What is it? And as I th- the more questions I had, the more depressed I got. So my attempt today is to walk you through... Um, what depression is, but I don't think that you're here because you want to know what it is, because I think we all know what it is. And I think those of you that are here that are interested in what we're going to be talking about today, the questions are more so, why me? Why him? Why her? How do I? What is healing? Is there healing? Where is God in all of this? And how do I get better when I can't even get out of bed? So I think those are the questions that we really wrestle with. So I'm going to very, very quickly take you through what is depression for the sake of disclosure, but we're going to very quickly get into what do we do with this, okay? So I'm hoping you're going to be able to see some of the PowerPoint, um, so we shall see. Okay, so let's, let's just pray for a minute. Let's just, um, let's just go to the Lord and ask him for um, blessing over this time. Lord God, we come to you knowing that you are the almighty God that knows us better than we could know ourselves. And we come to you and we say that we love you and that we accept your love this morning. It's not even this morning, this afternoon. God, I ask that you would open our hearts, that you would reveal the blinding that we might have in our own eyes that we might see you better, that we might take everything that you've made us to be and everything that we do from this point forward and glorify you with that. We praise you for this time. And Lord, I ask that you would speak through me with your word and scripture and that your Holy Spirit would just sit, sit among us today and that we would walk away with joy. Amen. So today is a good day. Um, I got to uh, sit in the parking lot in the elementary school this morning with my seven-year-old, almost seven-year-old son and, um, and pray with him as he received Christ. And it was such a great um, experience. And so today is a good day for me. And I think I would cry about that because... Um, I have no doubt that my son has something going with God. He and God have a thing, but they've always had a thing. But there was something about this morning that I just pictured the heavens opening up and the Lord reaching down and healing just a little piece of his heart that hadn't been healed yet. And, um, and that's my prayer for us today, is that a lot of us here probably know God and we probably um, understand ourselves and have a desire to, to know ourselves better My prayer today is that we walk away having just a little piece of our heart healed this morning. I'm going to say this morning because you can't say noon. It's not quite afternoon, so if I just keep saying this morning, you're just going to have to excuse that. So let's dive in. Let's dive in. Um, Victory over depression. Okay, let's talk about really quickly, since I'm a counselor, what is depression? Okay, 
I am not going to go through this thing, and I don't expect you to read it, but I, what I want you to get from this is I want you to see how complicated depression is. From a clinical perspective, depression is very complicated, and if I were to define it and just define it today, we wouldn't have enough time, okay? But I do want you to understand from a clinician standpoint, from the world standpoint, from the dsm 4 standpoint of what we're able to diagnose somebody with, how do we do that? And I'm gonna, we're going to zoom through this because I really don't want you to care about any of this. I just want you to see how complicated it is. Okay, so basically to diagnose somebody with depression, you have to meet a certain criteria, okay, and it has to meet certain things. So you've got A here, and you have to have, there's nine characteristics that we're going to zoom through, and you have to have at least five, okay, um, and then it unpacks from there. So basically you have to have five or more symptoms, um, one being a depressed mood for most of the day, nearly every day, um, number two, diminished interest in pleasure, um, Three is significant weight loss or weight gain. So you eat more than usual. You're eating less than usual. Four being you either sleep too much or you don't sleep enough. It's very vague, isn't it? It's like no matter what, it's just like you're one extreme or the other extreme, right? Five, psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. Basically that you're agitated, you're really worked up, or you're just moving very sluggishly. Again, it's the extreme. I mean, this was me this morning. I don't know about you guys, but this was me before my cup of coffee this morning. Um, Six, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Feelings of worthlessness is number seven. Um, inappropriate guilt, which could be delusional. When they say inappropriate guilt, meaning not the guilt that you would normally feel from an act or an attitude or something that you've done or that you should, would normally feel guilt for, but you just feel this overwhelming sense, this umbrella vague of guilt, okay? Eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate. So you're not able to focus on what you really want to focus on, okay? Nine, recurrent thoughts of death recurrent suicidal ideation. So you have to have five of those for us to be able to diagnose you with depression. Okay, at least five. But then you have all these other things that we're going to make it even more complicated. So is the, a mixed episode, I'm not even going to go into that. That might be like several different kinds of episodes of what depression might look like for you. Okay, then you get into does it significantly impair your ability to function throughout the day? Would, are you not able to complete the tasks that you really want to complete? Like if you want to get up in the morning and get your kids to school and you want to feed them breakfast and get them all ready and then get them to school, but there's such a depressed state or mood within you that you can't even get up to get the kids ready or get yourself ready and it's starting to impair your functioning. Okay. Um, not due to substance abuse. I summed that one up. Um, symptoms are not better accounted for bereavement or grief. But if it does, that it's been longer than two months. So you've grieved for two months, but after two months, it's not getting better. It's not going away. You're, you're not functioning very well. And from that point forward, we could diagnose you with depression. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you have experienced any level of intense grief, it's longer than two months, isn't it? Okay. Just want to make that clear. Okay, so then you get into all this other stuff like reoccurrent. Does this come and go? Is it just a one-time thing? You get into what season is it in? Is it, does it usually happen in the fall or is it a seasonal thing? You know, do you feel better in the summer or worse in the fall and the winter? Um, then you get into bipolar and it just gets very complicated. Okay, this is where you get into, is it hormonal? Is it something that's postpartum? Is it menopausal? What is it? It can be so complicated and the, a diagnosis for depression rarely looks like depression. It's diapression with reoccurrent or mixed episodes with an onset of here and it just is very complicated. 
okay? And I don't want you to have to try to understand all of that other than to know this is a very complicated topic for us to talk about. And I'm going to do my best for us to cover as much as we can all at once and be as inclusive as I can and be respectful and sensitive of the fact that everybody in this room has either experienced a certain level of depression or knows someone who has, or we can all say we've been on the spectrum of sadness or sorrow or whatever, um, but that I can do my best to speak from this broader perspective and in a sensitive way, I mean, do my best to understand that there are unique circumstances and situations and nobody looks, looks the same, okay? Is that fair? Okay. All right, so what is depression? We could come up with so many feeling words for what depression feels like, right? I mean, sadness, fatigue, anxiety, I feel trapped, I feel tired, I feel agitated, I feel hopeless, I feel helpless, I feel... There's so many feelings that we go through. Would all of us... Don't raise your hand yet. But I want to see how many of those have either been touched by depression, meaning you have either experienced it, it could have been a season in your life, it could be ongoing, maybe you have lived with somebody who you think has struggled, struggled with depression, that you've known somebody to go through some sort of grief, that you've known somebody who maybe had a medical condition where depression was part of that medical condition, that you have in some way felt ever sad Raise your hand. Okay, I think we can all relate, right? And a lot of this whole stuff that we, we talk about in counseling and diagnosing and all that kind of stuff, everything that people experience on the scale of humanity, we can all relate. It's just a spectrum. Some people feel it um, in a far different extreme than you might feel it, but we're all on the same spectrum, okay? All right. All right, so what is this, how, does this, how does this look for women? Since we're all women here, let's talk about how depression looks for women. Um, they did a poll with a bunch of a large group of Christian women, and all of these women said that they had happy marriages, they all said they had happy children, and they all said they had financial security. I would love to be in that group of women who could say that. And what they did is, and, but they had at some point in their life experienced some level of depression. So what they did is they asked them to, they gave them 10 different sources of depression. And what they were supposed to do was rank um, these 10 things in the order of what causes the most depression in your life. Okay. So first one was absence of romantic love and marriage, in-law conflicts, low self-esteem, problems with children, financial difficulties, loneliness, isolation, or boredom, sexual problems, health problems, fatigue and time pressure, and aging. So these women, I hope we can see, can you guys read that okay? Okay. What do you think was the number one reason why these women struggled with depression? Anybody? We're going to make this somewhat discussion. Fatigue and time pressure? Okay? Because of the stress of the multitasking of us women, right? Because just the tiredness of doing everything for everybody all the time and balancing that out in life. Right? Difficult, right? And it leaves us with that feeling of I can't do it all. Right? Okay, anybody else? Aging? Depressing. <laughs> Depressing. <laughs> anybody else? Number one, absence of romantic love and marriage. Okay? 
Which, I mean, that's a whole other topic that we women can get into as far as we experience love through connectedness. We experience love and intimacy through feeling connected with others, especially our spouse. So if, I mean, spouse comes home, husband comes home and just shuts the door the wrong way and we're in tears because you don't love me. Right? Okay. Actually, the number one, 50% said low self-esteem was the number one reason why they struggle with depression. Fifth, that's half of the women. And 80% of them had low self-esteem in the top three of reasons why they experience. Why? Why is it that women feel that the, the lowest view, why do they have to have a low view of themselves? That no matter what was going on in their worlds around them, that what caused them to feel down was they had such a low view of themselves that they couldn't get rid of that at the end of the day. Okay? And I think what you would see for men is that this is, this is no different for men. It's just the way in which it comes out of them is different than women. And so I think what you would see for men is that instead of it, them calling it low self-esteem, I think they would call it inadequacy. Feelings of inadequacy. Okay? All right, so we can all relate to depression, and depression is not a new thing. Okay? In all of Scripture, we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament depression scattered Levels of sadness, despair is scattered throughout the entirety of Scripture, okay? A couple of examples. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, and there was a point at which he said, um, I wish I had never been born. Those of you who remember the story of Elijah when he battles the prophets of Baal on um, Mount Carmel, you know, at, he cried out to God, 400 prophets he battled against, cried out to God, show them that you are the one true God. Come and follow through and show them that you are the one true God. And God did. I mean, how many times in your life do you get to say, God, show, show up. And he shows up and, and not just in the spiritual realm, but in all of his glory shows up. And if you don't walk away from that experience going, I know who I am and I know who God is. Why is it that very soon after Elijah was sitting under a tree or a bush saying, Lord, take my life from me. I'm done. I don't want this anymore. That he was such in a state of despair that all God could do was send physical relief in the form of food and rest to deliver him out of that. Okay? So I'm going to read, um, we all know, David throughout, I mean, you could go, you could pick any chapter in the book of Psalms and hear about depression. So I'm just going to read you a couple chapters out of Psalms. This is Psalm 77, 1 through 10. I yell, this is from the message. I yell out to my God. I yell with all of my might. I yell at the top of my lungs and he listens. I found myself in trouble and went looking for my Lord. My life was an open wound that wouldn't heal. When friends said everything will turn out right, I didn't believe a word they said. I remember God and I shake my head. I bow my head but then I wring my hands. I'm awake all night, not a wink of sleep. I can't even say what's bothering me. I go over the days, one by one. I ponder the years gone by. I strum my lute all through the night, wondering how to get my life together. This is not new. We know that, right? It's not new. I mean, can we even mention Jesus in the garden in anguish, in agony, to such the point that he's sweating blood? And we'll get back to that later, but this is not new, and our Lord has experienced it too, and it's just the state of humanity. 
Samuel Logan Bringle was um, the great saint of the Salvation Army who struggled with depression himself. And he has written so many books and um, letters that have taught Christians all over the world to live a deeper life with Christ, um, taught us about what holiness means. And um, and he struggled with depression. And when they wrote about him, they said um, that he would be overwhelmed with a battle of just melancholy. And when he would write a letter to someone and talk about his feelings of depression, he would say, my nerves were ragged, frazzled, and exhausted, and such gloom and depression fell upon me as I have never known, although depression is an old acquaintance of mine. Some of us feel that way. Some of us feel that depression is just an old friend that won't go away. They just, we just walk hand in hand together, depression and I. It's just my lot. It's just my struggle. And he was one of those that felt that. He later had um, a head injury that made his depression even worse. And so um, this was not something that, um, that he was rid of during his life. It was something that he struggled with. So why? We live in a state in the, of the world that when sin entered the world... It's just, it's the law of sin and nature in our world that we will always long for home. We will always long for paradise. Till the day we die, we will always long for something greater. No matter what you have in your life, what you don't have, no matter whether you get the best night creams and stop the signs of aging, whether you have the most brilliant husband who loves you more than anything else in the world, whether you have all the financial security in the world, nothing can replace the longing that we have created inside of us to long for home. If we didn't have it, we would have no desire to work there and no desire to have a relationship with God. It's in us. It won't go away. It's just the state of where we are. We will always long for paradise. So if depression is the state of the world, it's just in the world. It's due to sin being in the world, um, which we will unpack. Um, and it's not of the Lord, and that I mean that to say that God does not inflict depression on us, then there's a different question that we need to be asking. And it's not, Lord, why have you given this to me? Or why have you given this to him or her? The question instead needs to be something different, and that is, why has he permitted this? Why has he allowed this in my life? God has complete sovereign control over our lives. He allows things to happen in our lives. He allows life to happen. And because sin is in the world, life happens. Cancer happens. Sickness happens. Abuse happens. We are victimized. We are hurt. We are rejected. We feel the things that we feel because sin is in the world. And so the question is, why does God allow us to feel it? So what I, what I want to do, um, what I want you to walk away with is I try to think of what are the four things that I want you to walk away with. The four things that I absolutely know to be true based on the authority of scripture that you can walk away with and say, I know this to be true and I can walk forward in that. So we're going to go through four different truths and we're going to unpack them along the way. Um, By the way, um, at your tables you have cards. And what I'd like for you to do, this is such a big topic, 
is if you have a question, if you have a comment about something that I've said or want me to unpack something further, I want you to write that on the card. And then I am going to do my best, have mercy on me, Lord, to finish and give you a five-minute break where I'm going to collect those and go through them. And then we're going to come back for a discussion time and go through some of those questions. Okay? So as you have them, write them down, and then I'll collect them as we, as we kind of get closer to the end. Okay? All right. So truth number one. Depression comes in many forms. Okay, I've touched on a couple of those so far, and we're going to zoom through this. These are the best ways that I can describe depression showing up, okay? Number one is situational. Something happens. Life happens. Abuse happens. An event happens. Death will happen. Some type of event will happen in your life and will cause a period of depression or feelings of depression that are situational. And when I say grief over loss, it can be the loss over anything. It can be the loss of a marriage. It can be the loss of a relationship, a friendship. It can be the loss of your dreams, that you had dreams to do something. And because of a certain event, that dream was taken away from you. That's still grieving. It's still grieving. And it's grieving over something that has been lost. And so it's a situational um, source of depression. Number two is as a consequence to sin in the world. Um, and in our life within our family of origin. I'm going to try to unpack this a little bit. Sometimes when we commit a sin and we commit something against God, he will allow the consequence of feelings of depression or feelings of feeling down with the intent that he wants you to come and reconcile that with him. It's oftentimes that feeling of guilt that you have. When you've done something and you know that it was a sin, you know it was something that you, sin- you committed against someone else or you committed against God, and if you don't follow through with that and go to God and write that with him, that those feelings will become a consequence playing out from that sin. And the whole purpose of that is for God to reconcile that with you and, and allow you to humble yourself and, and approach God and ask for forgiveness or approach that person and ask for forgiveness and write that. Um, we know that scripture says that, um, that physical, the physical consequence is death, but the spiritual consequences of death are, I think, far more devastating because they roll over. They can tend to roll over to your children and to your children's children if they're not repented of and if they're not, um, if you don't take that to God and change that family tree. Some of us have experienced that in our own life where we have committed something and have not righted that. Um, most of us in, our, in this room could probably say that we know that something has happened in our family, maybe within your parents or your grandparents, and we struggle with um, that sin and how, and the best way that I can explain it <clears throat> is that when we grow up and we are, when we're children growing up in whatever kind of environment that you're brought up in, all we know is what we learned. All we know is what we saw. And if what we saw and what we learned um, Part of that, if it was a consequence to the sin, such as faithlessness in God, doubting God, um, immoral, Im- immorality, that if that's all we ever knew, that we can very easily walk into that and live that out. And we're gonna, I'm, I promise I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. But, if, but for right now, what I want you to see is that some, God will allow feelings of um, depressed feelings Um, as a result of bringing you closer to him and asking him to write that relationship with you, okay? Um, I do want to read, here's a good example of how it passes down. 
Hebrews 3, 16. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those they would, who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. All, those of you remember of Moses and the Israelites brought into the desert, and they were given the opportunity to enter into the promised land because of their disbelief, because of their turning from God, because of their sin against God, they were not permitted to enter into the promised land. They were not permitted to enter into the, this time of rest that he had planned for them. And that fell into the next generation as well. Um, you see in the book of Malachi, you see um, the curse upon the generation because of their unbelief. Um, the book of Joel, the same way, that there is a curse upon that generation. A lot of Old Testament scriptures really point out that if we don't bring that back to God, that we can accidentally pass that down and teach that to our children, and they can teach that to their children, okay? All right, moving on. Um, chemical and hormonal and physical attributes. Some of us are just born with a predisposition to have a chemical struggle. Um, the serotonin levels, the dopamine levels within our brain are just not balanced enough to give us the, the, the stable feelings of um, peacefulness. And, and it's an ongoing battle and struggle with those depressing feelings. Um, hormonal. I mentioned postpartum. Menopause could be thrown in there. Um, and I don't want to... Um, forget about many medical conditions, MS, Parkinson's, TBIs, um, traumatic brain injuries. We see that a lot in the military, that some, some things can happen in life, whether it's a disease or an accident or something that can happen, like we mentioned, Bringle, um, who had the brain injury, um, can cause um, neurological damage and neurological changes within the brain that can leave that person struggling with depression. So I want to make sure that I'm, I'm saying that clearly, that some will struggle with that, and we need to figure out what do we do from that from that forward and then um, the temptation or spirit you know God permits in sometimes our most vulnerable places in life to be tempted by a spirit of depression tempted with the um, idea of entertaining those feelings and sitting in those feelings for longer than we should um, sometimes it happens naturally when you have a dramatic, um, like I imagine Elijah did on Mount Carmel, just had this dramatic experience with God, this heightened mountaintop experience, and then the fatigue and the um, low energy, the valley that comes from that. And sometimes naturally we just are overcome at our most vulnerable with a temptation to dip into the despair and the depression that can settle in. Um, but it's our choice to entertain that spirit. It's our choice to follow through with that and allow that to wreak havoc in our life. Psychotic would be some of the things that you see on the news. The delusions. These are the, the psychotic source of depression is more when you see um, somebody who is convinced, internally convinced, to do something dramatic and um, something that can completely alter their life or someone else's life. Um, and, you know, we could get into where that comes from, but it can come from any of those. It can come from a chemical imbalance. It could come from um, sin. It could come from anything. And sometimes it's a mixture of any of those. But I just wanted to point that out because sometimes you'll see that. Okay. 
All right, so if I were to talk about treatment of depression, um, basically, it, there's no one way to treat it. It's, everybody is different. But I wanted to make sure that I point out that you have the biological, the psychological, the spiritual, and the social. We all need social support. We all need to take care of our bodies. Sometimes medication is a temporary fix to feelings of depression, and sometimes medication is a long-term treatment to the relief of symptoms. It's the mercy of God that he has given us the ability to relieve those symptoms. And for some, that is a long-term process. Um, for some, it's a matter of changing your nutrition. Um, it's, sometimes it's going for counseling and talking and processing about things that have happened in your life and seeing new perspectives on that. It's a holistic view of how do we treat this issue of feelings of despair. Um, but for the sake of today, I'm going to focus more so on the spiritual side because I think that's what you guys really want to hear. Okay. Truth number two, the enemy desires to rob us of our joy and vision. So number one is there's many sources. It can come from lots of different things. But number two that I want you to walk, walk away with today is um, the enemy has every desire to come at you and rob you of that joy. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, people perish. We know in Acts that the Holy Spirit is given to us for us to see visions, to see great dreams, to see the vision of what God wants to do through us, in us, with us, um, within us, to how he wants to change that. And if the enemy can rob that from you and take that vision from you, then he can rob you of the fullness of what life is about and the fullness of what it means to live in joy and live with God. So what does, what does he want to do? There's three things that if I could sum it up, what the enemy wants to do, he wants to do these three things. And you'll see that this is echoed in the story of Jesus when he's tempted in the desert, right? Um, so the first thing he would want to do is turn you away from God completely. And if he can manage to turn you away from God and twist your view on who God really is and the truth of, of, of who he is, um, then he can, he can totally help you miss the mark and stay away from being focused on who God is and the truth of, of what can be set free in your life because of that. So we see this um, with Jesus when he says, in the end of that temptation, where he says, I will give you that authority. Turn away from him. I will give you that authority to do whatever it is that you want to do. That if he can convince you that God is not good, that he doesn't love me, that he didn't make me, as well as they say that he made me, um, <clears throat> that he's not a good God, that he's not a good God because he won't heal me. Um, that if he can twist your view on who God is, um, that's one of the first things he wants to do. Number two, he wants to deceive you by twisting the truth. And I mean by twisting the truth of, about you. He did with, his, with Jesus as well, because Jesus' greatest temptation was who he was going to be to the world. And so if he could twist his view on what kind of Messiah he was going to be, that was what he did. He said, why don't you be this kind of Messiah? Why don't you be a political Messiah? Why don't you go, you know, go out in the town, show them, show them how miraculous you are, show them your power. But he said, it's not, Jesus responded that it's not my time yet. That if he can twist your view of yourself, and I think this is where he succeeded, succeeds the most, but I think number two ties into number three in the way that he succeeds with us, because number three is that he convinces, us, convinces you to glorify anything other than God. And he tempted Jesus the same way. So if he can twist the truth about who you are, and then he convinces you to shift your focus to something other than God, then he has you, and he can keep you there. And then he can tempt you with the idea of entertaining that spirit longer and let you sit in it 
and you lose sight of God and his healing power, okay? Um, You know, we see, uh, well, let me just say, when he deceives the truth of who you are, this is where that low self-esteem comes in. This is where we start to feel bad about ourselves. We don't like how we were created. Why was I created this way? Why do I have to live with this constant feeling of depression? Why do I have to feel like I have to live on medication my whole life? Why do I have to... um, I don't like this about me. I don't like that about me. She does it better. Whatever it is, if he can shift your focus on you and create such a low self-esteem, then you miss out on the fullness of your life and you waste your gifts that God has given you. And you miss out on extreme potential that God has given you to go out into the world and live for his kingdom and change the world. Because if he can keep you in your house, if he can keep you paranoid, if he can keep you isolated, then you don't do anything effective for God. And he, keeps, he does that by shifting the focus inward and having you focus on yourself. When we see people who struggle with pride, when they walk away from a big experience, they are tempted in one of two ways. Either I'm going to be prideful and I'm going to think, I did that so great. I was so good at that. And they think too highly of themselves. Or it's the other extreme, right? I did horrible. I didn't say the things I wanted to say. I didn't say it right. You know, I didn't wear the right thing. Shame. And all shame is, is I am. I am bad. I'm a bad person. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I am. I, I, I. And pride and shame are the two, are the flip sides of the same coin. It's thinking too highly of yourself or thinking too lowly of yourself, but still you're thinking about yourself. Okay? And those that struggle with depression really fall. They fall and are tempted into this shame category of, I'm going to think so lowly of myself. So how does he get you to glorify something other than God? If he can't get you to shift your focus on yourself, he'll get you to focus on something about your pain. So he'll get you to focus on the pain itself. Okay? He gets you to focus on the grief. Like let's say you're dealing with loss or death. If he can get you to sit in that grief, sit in the pain and sit in the suffering and stay there, then you're so overcome with that grief and you're so overcome with that sadness that you're more focused on the sadness than anything else that's happening around you. You're missing out on what's going on in the lives around you and on what that could be happening in your life. Yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I know. There's so much to unpack here. Um, I was going to give you guys a five-minute break, but if you need it, you've got to just get up and have a five-minute break and do what you need to do. <laughs> um, if he can convince you to isolate yourself, if he can convince you to um, hole up and say, I, I can't serve, I can't serve, nobody wants me to serve, nobody wants me, I'm not good enough, if he can convince you to hole up instead of getting out there and serving other people and thinking outside of yourself. You know, when Jesus came, the gospel was, was presented and revealed in community to thousands of people. When Jesus came, it was not in isolation. It wasn't meant to be revealed and experienced alone. It was ex- meant to be experienced in community. And so when you isolate, or when you see a person isolate... They're removing themselves from their ability to experience community and fellowship in the way that God intended, in the way for him to reveal himself to you. He can, yes, when you pray to God, you can have an experience with God, but God will often follow that up by affirming that through someone else, 
through community. Validating that and the truth that he spoken to you through someone else or through scripture or through community, through the, through the body. And if you isolate yourself, you're giving full opportunity for the enemy to continue to attack you and tempt you to entertain that and sit in it. Okay? So in the medieval times, there was this torture device called the, the scavenger's daughter. I don't know if you've heard about this. This was developed, we think, by Henry VIII. Um, and so it was meant to be a torture device that was the complete opposite of the rack, right? The rack would completely stretch you out and up. And so what the scavenger's daughter did, if you can see on the right, your head would go in the top, your arms would go there in the middle, and then your feet would be strapped inside on the bottom. And what it would do is it would pull your head down to your knees and down to your feet slowly. You can see in the drawing up there, crushing you in into yourself, compressing you, right, the opposite of stretching you out, but compressing you to the point that it crushes you, your body. When you see someone in depression, this is, this is the picture that I have. Is it not? Do you see somebody, when, when you feel depressed, do you walk outside and go, I'm depressed! I feel horrible! I mean, do you, I mean, do you see that? No. It's this, I'm horrible. I'm so sad. I'm so tired. I'm so weary. I can't do this by myself, but nobody loves me. Right? Until they're so low and so compressed in on themselves that you find them in fetal position, in their bed, wishing they were dead, thinking that they're so small that they wish they were dead. There is something about our ability to focus so much on our pain and so much on ourself that it's this compressing action of just, it's about me. Right? It's destructive. It's not what we were made to live. Is this a picture of freedom and God? And yet the Protestants have this strange perspective of suffering, don't we? That the closer we are to God, the less we should suffer. Is that really accurate? No. In fact, in Catholicism, you, on the extreme of Catholicism, you see them over-identifying with suffering. And we have this misunderstood um, understanding of the guilt that they experience of the cross before me, the cross behind me, that if I, when I experience suffering, it is I welcome suffering into my life. Why? Because it's not going to go away. Suffering this, with the state of the world, and I know this sounds depressing, <laughs> it's not going to change. It's not going to go away. And to say that because we believe in God that we're never going to suffer again is a lie. And it's a lie from Satan. Because suffering will happen. It's what we choose to do with it. So truth number three, it is not entirely the enemy, but is determined by my response to what God has permitted. The things that have happened to you are not as important as the ways that you respond to it. Whatever that has happened in your life, it has happened. It's your choice from that point forward what you do with it. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of Viktor Frankl. Um, I just came back from D.C. from a PTSD conference. And um, 
we went and visited the Holocaust Museum. And those of you who have been there, it's a very depressing despair of an experience to, to watch so many thousands and thousands of people who went through such torture, who went through such um, hellish, hellish environments the way they did during the Holocaust. And Viktor Frankl was one of those who survived it. He's written um, several books, but there's something about the way that Viktor Frankl came out of that experience, having lost his family, having experienced such immense grief and depression in his life, and yet he was able to say this, the one thing you, can take, you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. The one thing he walked away from the Holocaust was being able to say, you can do anything you want to me, but you can't take away my ability to choose. You can't take away my ability to choose my attitude and choose how I will respond to you. The truth is, one, God allows things to happen in our life. Number two, the enemy is going to do everything he can to tempt you to shift your focus from God. And to twist your thinking on what that experience was like, what the feeling is like, what the event was like. If he can twist his focus, he will. And if he can convince you to sin, he will. But number three is what I do with it matters. It's up to me. The enemy can do anything he wants to me, but it's up to me on what I choose to do with it. So gravity. Everybody knows what gravity is? Can we escape gravity? Not really. Does gravity go away? No. The law of gravity is such that it pulls our weight down. And depression can feel like that, the weight, carrying your own weight. We have choices to what we do with what happens in our life. We have the choice to sit in our lies that we hear from the enemy or the things that we tell ourselves. We have the choice to choose, I'm going to do it by myself. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need medication. I'm not going to receive the grace and mercy that medication can bring me by relieving me of the symptoms that I have temporarily or for the rest of my life. I'm not going to choose that mercy. I'm going to choose, I'm going to do it by myself. And it doesn't matter how it affects anybody else around me. I'm going to choose to do that on my own. The idea of remaining a victim instead of a survivor or allowing sin to further numb and hide us from the fullness of God. We can't escape gravity, but there is only one way we can overcome it, and what is that? How do we overcome gravity? And what do we have to do before we get into space? Come a little lower, not quite out of this world. You're so close. How have we overcome gravity? Flying, right? Aerodynamics, the law of aerodynamics help us to overcome the law of gravity, right? With the right tools, respecting the elements around us, understanding what that law is about, we can overcome gravity, right? There is no, the scripture is, is saying the same thing. We live in, with the law of sin around us. And Jesus said, I did not come to remove that law, I came to overcome it. We have the choice to sit under the law of sin in our life. Whether it's within us, or directed at us, or around us, we have the choice to sit in it, or learn something different to overcome it. Okay? So we have been given the spirit of truth. Galatians 
says, Paul says, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We don't have to live in that. We have the choice daily, hourly. For some people, minute by minute, it feels like minute by minute, I have to choose something different or I'm going to sit in this. We have the choice with the law of the Spirit and what Christ has done in our life to overcome that which is in the world and experience the freedom and joy that comes in God. Truth number four, there is purpose to bring glory out of all things the Lord has permitted us to experience. This is as simple as it gets. He allows things. The enemy may tempt us, but we have the choice in how we respond. Um, I want to read John chapter 9 to you. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. But it's really important for this topic because I want you to see um, it's the perfect chapter for this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice they're already bringing up sin, and they're already bringing up generational issues as well. Neither this man or his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Already he is discounted. It's not anything that this man has done, and it's not anything that his parents have done, but it's, I have allowed it in order that the glory of God might shine through. As long as it is day, we must do the, this is still Jesus talking, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which meant, the word meant sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Notice his response is different from the man at the pool when Jesus goes to the man and says, do you want to be made well? And he says, well, no one will take me. Everyone bypasses me. No one will help me into the pool. And that's not what Jesus asked, is it? Sometimes the Lord is coming to us and saying, do you want to be well? Some of us don't want to get well. Some of us would rather sit in our feelings than be well. Because being well sounds like too much work. And those of you who live with somebody or know somebody or struggle with somebody who struggles with depression knows what that feels like, don't you? Because those who would rather sit in their despair, because they can't control the despair within themselves, they find ways to control everything else around them. And so you see this when you see somebody that says, I've been struggling with depression my whole life since I was 15 and now I'm 60. Really? When was the last time it really flared up? Oh, it was my daughter's wedding. It was your daughter's wedding. What happened? I was just so upset. I couldn't let her go. It just was horrible, and she wouldn't let me do anything, and it was all me. And yet it was an opportunity to control what was happening that day. And instead of that person having the opportunity to live the fullness of what it's like to watch their, their daughter walk down the aisle and enjoy that and rejoice in that, 
Instead, it was so much about them, they missed out on it. And they were robbed of that joy. And the daughter ends up being robbed as well. Robbed of that experience. So let's go back. So he spits on the ground. He tells the man to go and wash, and he does. His neighbors... Um, oh, so the man went and washed, and then he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And s- some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he said, But he himself insisted, I am that man. Well, then how were your eyes opened, they demanded. And he replied, The men they called Jesus made some mud and spit it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went, and I washed, and then I could see. Notice he has no clue how it happened. He just did what he was told to do. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees, this man who had been blind. And now on the day which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Notice he's repeating himself. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous things? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, He's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And that's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? A little bit of sarcasm there. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, and he listens to the godly men who do his will. Nobody has ever heard of the eyes of a man born blind opened. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us and threw him out. They were so fixated on finding the blame, not only to Jesus, but as a result of his blindness, that they couldn't see what the guy was testifying before them. It wasn't a matter of how, it's just what happened. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. And Jesus said, you now have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who, will, those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Basically, are you, saying, are you calling us blind? And he said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I have good news for you. 
Jesus is basically saying here, if you are ignorant of your sin, it's okay. If you don't know that it's sin, I, I, I understand. But what he's saying to these Pharisees is, you have seen Christ. You have seen the works of Christ. And you choose to not believe. And at that point, their response became sin. The good news is, is some of us don't understand that there is the result of sin in our life that has caused feelings that we have. And if we didn't know it till today, God is so forgiving and gracious in that. But at the same time, we are called that if he brings that light and if he shows us what is going on in our life and we still choose to do something otherwise, then we are doing that against God. Whatever it is that you have felt, whatever despair that you have felt, whatever suffering you have felt, nothing compares to what Christ felt. I know we're going a little bit over time, but I want you to do something with me. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture the cross. You don't have to picture Jesus on the cross, but I want you to picture the cross. It doesn't have to be fancy, okay? So I want everybody to close your eyes. Now, if you're a parent, I want you to picture, especially if you have two children, but if not, just imagine this. You've got two children. One of your children goes and kills the other child. The feelings that come over you the anger, the rage, the sadness, the despair, the confusion. And then I want you to picture that child who just murdered your other child to turn to you and say, I don't regret it one bit. And to walk away. And then as you turn around, your spouse walks up to you and says, I'm gone. I'm leaving. It's over. And turns away and walks away from you. And then you go back to your house and you get a phone call from your parents. Both of them have been diagnosed with cancer and they're not going to live much longer and they have nothing to pass down to you. They have nothing to give you. And with all the help that you need right now, they have nothing to offer. Your best friend, the one that you would normally rely on, has made herself completely unavailable. It's too much for you to deal with, for her to deal with. You are too much. And then you get a knock at the door and you get handed an eviction notice that you have to leave your house. That everything that you own is not yours anymore. Now I want you to multiply that by a million times. And I want you to take that and put that on the cross. Because Jesus, on the cross, watched in horror across history, behind him and before him, his children, with no resentment, hurting and killing each other, without a thought, destroying the very creation that he loves. His father turned away. And he said to him, why have you forsaken me? He has experienced unfaithfulness. He's experienced grief. He had no home to turn to. 
Even the people who loved him in his hometown would not receive him. His friends, the ones that he could count on, rejected him at the end. There is absolutely nothing that we can feel in this lifetime that he has not felt a million times over. And heap upon that the guilt and the shame and the sin of every act that has ever been committed. Osama bin Laden, Hitler, serial rapists, the guilt and the sin that was in their life heaped upon what he was already feeling. There's nothing more that he could have experienced. And yet, he turned next to him and prayed for the man next to him. You can open your eyes. We have the choice to take what is in our lives and take it to the cross. That is the only place for it. That is the only place where it needs to go, where it was made to go. The cross is the peak of injustice and pain. Purposefully designed that way. So that Jesus could say, I have felt everything and more. There is nothing new that you are feeling that I have not already felt. Every bit of justice that you want to have on that person who hurt you, it's mine to deliver. The seals, message, the seals did not deliver the justice to bin Laden. God did that day. And I pray that he knew God before it happened. The Lord said, justice is mine. And when you take and you live your life with a lack of forgiveness and have not dealt with that in your life, and you say, I want that justice, you are taking that from God. That is his, not yours. Everything we feel has to be taken to the cross. Everything that we feel. That's why the Catholics are so good about taking their suffering and saying, the cross before me, the cross behind me, surround me with the sufferings of Christ because nothing is worse than that. Nothing that I go through in life is worse than that. And I can take that to the Lord and he can deliver me out of that and instead replace it with beauty with joy, with peace, to be able to say, I don't have the energy to get out of bed today. But with the Lord's help, I got up. I wanted to make this day about me, but I took it to the Lord, and he reminded me of who he is and who I am. And he gave me the strength to do that. The man in chapter 9, that's all he did. He couldn't explain what happened or how it happened or, or how he was able to see. All he did was just say what happened. I, I can see. And he did it. And I'm going to worship him. So let's pray. Thank you for letting me go over. I'm sorry I went over. Lord, I just thank you for your mercy and your grace. And I thank you for your presence that overcomes us. I pray for strength for those who struggle with this. I pray that you would give them the rest. That you would give them the physical nourishment that they need in their bodies to be made well. I pray that you would surround them with support, people that love them, people that love you, that can speak truth into their lives of who they are and who you are, the forgiveness that you're able to give, the mercy that you're able to give, the understanding and the ability to relate to them where they are 
and yet giving them the strength to move forward. I pray for those who struggle with someone that they love, who struggles with this. I pray that you would give them patience. I pray that you would give them healthy boundaries to be able to um, not allow the enemy to continue to rob them of the joy that you want them to have. That they would be able to speak the truths of, of your word in love and encourage them that you love them and that you have never intended for us to feel alone. That from the very design of bringing your son that we would not feel alone but feel understood and feel that we have someone to carry our burdens. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.